The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from the Gospel of Luke. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 17, the verses 1 to 6, in connection with the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer as we work our way through the Lord's Prayer these afternoon services. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we'll be reading from Luke 17. The verses 1 to 6. And you'll be able to find that on page 1206 of your pew Bible. Jesus Christ has been speaking to his disciples in parables. He has been teaching in various parables about the kingdom and about the end of people, their final end. This most recent parable, he spoke of the final end of the rich man who had never, never helped the poor man, Lazarus, during life and the end that came to him. So the disciples have this picture of these things that other people have been doing that have been wrong and the people who are on the receiving end of this within the framework of Christ's kingdom teaching. We come, and then we come to our passage, Luke chapter 17. Then he, being Jesus, said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So far, the reading of God's word. We'll also read together from the fifth petition as it's spoken about in Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and you'll be able to find that on page 563 of your book of praise. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how do you feel when you see somebody justly getting what they deserve? Maybe it's at the end of a uh, movie that you've recently watched, and you see the man who has been built up as a villain throughout the length of the movie, 
reaching his final moment where he thinks he has the victory, and then in the last moment it's snatched away from him, and he comes to ruin. There's a bit of a feeling of satisfaction there, isn't there? A bit of a a thrill that somebody got what they were headed towards. There would have been something similar in the hearts of Jesus' disciples at this point in time. In the various parables before, we see people getting various ends. In particular, in the parable that comes right before with Lazarus, Lazarus himself, he is received into the bosom of Abraham, but the man who was the man who had neglected and rejected Lazarus in life, he is the man who ends up in Sheol. He is the one who ends up in this place of torment. And then we see Jesus Christ here saying, it is impossible that no offenses should come, that no sins should come into this world because we live in a broken world. But woe to the person through whom they come. And you have the disciples sitting on the edge of their seats, remembering this parable that has just gone by. And they're thinking, yes, this is right. It's better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones or cause one of these little ones to sin. In the ancient world, a millstone, the the kind of millstone that they're talking about is a stone that's in the shape of a giant donut that's held in place on top of another stone that's the foundation of the whole structure with a rod that's going through the middle. And this millstone would have been a stone that's uh, between several hundred pounds to even over a thousand pounds that would be lifted up and then grain would be placed underneath and then it would be lowered down again and an animal would turn this millstone so that the grain that's under there would be crushed to powder. It would be crushed down into flour. Jesus is saying it would be better for a person if this millstone was tied around his neck and he was thrown into the depths of the sea than if he caused one of these little ones to sin, if he caused harm or if he cause sorrow to these ones through sin. These little ones that are being spoken of are not people who are small. It's not talking specifically about children here. But it's speaking about all of those who are standing around Jesus Christ at this point in time. Those who are young in their faith. They're tender in their faith, and they've got a ways that they need to grow yet. The disciples, they feel a sense of satisfaction in what Jesus is saying, 
that the people who cause injury to the young and tender faith of those who are around, they will meet a bad end. But as they have this sense of satisfaction, Jesus suddenly steps up and he says, take heed to yourselves. Pay attention. They sit up and they listen a little bit more intently. And he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Following so far. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day he returns to you, saying, I repent, forgive him. That is something that's, that staggers them a little bit. So this thing that has been such a a grievous sin that's been committed against me, that it's better if a stone is tied around their neck and they be thrown into the sea, this terrible thing that they've done to me, it's something that I need to forgive. And not just once, but I need to forgive seven times. The disciples are staggered by this. And their immediate response as they step back in shock to this is, Lord, increase our faith. I don't think I can do this. It's kind of understandable, this response, isn't it? From our perspective. To us, there are times when God's word almost seems too clear. And we would rather not hear what it has to say. And yet here Jesus Christ makes it clear we must forgive those who are around us. Today we will examine this weighty command under the following theme and points. Forgiving others just as we are forgiven. First of all, we must forgive. Secondly, what forgiveness is not. And finally, what forgiveness is. When we read this passage, it's very, very clear what Jesus is talking about. Not only must we forgive, but we must forgive with a heart that is open. We must forgive with a heart that doesn't hold anything back. For those who were looking at this, well, a brother comes to you seven times a day and seven times a day returns to you saying, I repent. All right, well, this person has sinned against me in this way and in that way and in that way and that way and that way and that way and that way. Okay, I'm off scot-free. Seven times I've forgiven them today, I'm good to go. Well, Jesus Christ makes it very clear elsewhere that this isn't the case. If we look at Matthew chapter 18, for example, the apostle Peter comes up to him and he says, well, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? He's keeping a running tally. But he says, no, no. You must forgive your brother up to 70 times seven. 
This is a number of fullness. This is a number in which we are called to reach out in forgiveness to those who are around us. Our Lord calls us to forgive. But how is this possible? This seems like a pretty heavy thing to bear, doesn't it? If we consider what other people have done against us, we can very easily see, in some cases, how it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. We are on board for that. But for the other part, we have a lot more difficulty with that. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism directs our attention to several things. If you could open to Lord's Day 51 for a moment, page 563. How is it possible that Jesus Christ could ask this of us? Jesus Christ asks this of us because this isn't just a command that he gives us, but this is the fruit or the result of something that has already been done for us, something that's coming out in our lives. The catechism immediately directs us to the cross with these first words for the sake of Christ's blood. For the sake of Christ's blood. Sometimes we are considering the cost of forgiveness. And we think this is too heavy of a price to bear. But the catechism immediately points us, it teaches us to look to what Christ our Savior has done for us. Sometimes we're working through this and we we slide pretty quickly over this. Say we're memorizing it for catechism or whatever else we're doing. It just comes out of our mouth and then we move on. But there's a weight here. It's for the sake of Christ's blood. There's a great cost. Well, what about the cost of the sacrifice of a son? The son of God. Jesus Christ stretched out his arms on the cross. He was beaten. He was spat on. He was mocked. But even more than that, he suffered the wrath of God. He suffered intentionally at great personal cost to obtain forgiveness and restoration. It's this that he has purchased for us. But it's also a new life that he has purchased for us. In his death, 
He washed away our sins. But in his death and burial and resurrection, he raised us up to something that is greater. He transforms us. And so out of necessity, something flows out of that which we have received. It's a spring that's bubbling up inside of us. God has led us to a new place. For the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us. Impute is don't credit this to my account. Do not impute to us, wretched sinners, a recognition of who we are. Deplorable, forlorn, miserable, and pathetic in our sin of our own account. Don't impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions. And not just any of our transgressions, but the evil which still clings to us from day to day. Those things which we struggle against from day to day. And God himself, for the sake of Christ his Son, for the sake of his blood, he does lift that up off of us. He does wash us clean. He does transform us. When we are sitting there praying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we are praying that God would not impute to us the weight of our own sin. And we are praying that God would move it from us to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has willingly received it for our sake. And then we look at that. And in response, how can we still say, I am forgiven, but I will not forgive? God is willing to forgive, but my standards are higher. I will not offer to someone what God has given to them and what God gives to me. To do this is to actively suppress this in our life. To actively suppress the new life that is welling up from within us. You see, Jesus Christ is speaking to these little ones, those who belong to him. They have new life within them. They have the beginnings of new life within them. And so he calls them not to suppress it, but to follow him and to listen to his command, to listen to his call. This brings us to our second point, what forgiveness is not. Now we have to be clear. We have to be clear when we're talking about forgiveness, that we understand what we're speaking of. There's three things in particular that I'd like to touch down on here. First of all, forgiveness is not necessarily a response to someone's request for forgiveness. We read in our passage here today, if someone forgives, sins against you up to seven times a day and seven times a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And there can be the temptation to think, well, this person hasn't asked me for 
forgiveness, so it's okay. I can put them aside. I don't need to respond to them. But we can see in our lives, we can see in the Bible how God is using this as an example here in this place. But in other places, he makes it very clear what forgiveness also looks like. It's not necessarily a response to someone's request for forgiveness, and this is a good thing too. Imagine if God held our sins against us in this way, barring us from heaven if we forgot to ask forgiveness for that particular sin, or even sins that we don't realize we are committing. But in Romans 5 verse 10, we read how we were enemies of God. Not only were we not asking, we weren't even thinking of asking before God reached out. And yet he forgave us. Christ himself on the cross, as he was stretched out on the cross, he cried, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. They didn't even have the intention or the desire to ask him for forgiveness. They were actively mocking him. And yet, he had this spirit of forgiveness towards them. Stephen the martyr, the first martyr of the the first martyr of the Christian faith. A man who, as he was being stoned to death in the book of Acts, cries out, Do not hold this sin against them. He's forgiven his murderers. He asks God, even as he's being stoned, Don't hold this against them. Our forgiving someone doesn't necessarily depend on the other person first coming to us to request for forgiveness. Another thing that forgiveness is not is a return to the way things were before. It is the first step of that process. The fullness of that process is reconciliation. Reconciliation is what God freely offers us through Jesus Christ, even though we had gone astray. We were reconciled to him, continuing in Romans 5 verse 10, through the death of his son. And being, having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. But forgiveness is the first step within that process. This is something that we strive towards, certainly. If you're the one who sinned against someone, Christ tells us in Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24, if you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This, by the way, as we're coming up on Lord's Supper in two weeks, is something to reflect on as well. If somebody has something against us and we remember it in preparation for the Lord's Supper as we're reflecting in our hearts on this upcoming Lord's Supper to come to them and strive to be reconciled. But forgiveness is not a complete return to the way that things were before. It's part of the larger process of reconciliation. And forgiveness is not simply forgetting about it either. God does this. This is an incredible gift that he gives us in Christ. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Hebrews 8 verse 12. 
and in the Lord's Supper form that we will be reading, we're reminded of these words, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. God is so gracious towards us in our weaknesses and shortcomings that he wipes the slate clean for the sake of his son. But we ourselves don't simply forget about things that have happened to us. And it's actually a good thing that we're wired this way. God has created us to be wired this way. We experience trauma. There are pathways that are burned into our brain to help us not to get into a situation in which we'll have that again. Many of you today are camping right now, right? And you have your, you yourselves have the memories that you don't want to touch the fire because you had that trauma burned into your brain. You didn't even have to be at a campfire to know that. You came to a stove and you burned your hand on the stove and you thought, that's hot as a child. And that was burned into your brain. And so in, even in this new setting, you don't put yourself into a new place where you can re-experience this trauma. And you keep your children back from the fire Because this memory has been wired into your brain. We would harm ourselves over and over again. This is a gift from God that we do not forget. But it also doesn't mean that the hurt will go away. And yet, we are called in the face of this, to forgive. So what is forgiveness then? Forgiveness is, above all, an attitude of the heart, and it has to begin there. We can say that we forgive while still punishing the other person if it doesn't begin in our heart. It's an attitude in the heart that manifests in Letting go of your right to punish the other person. You may have heard of something like this in relationships. It's withhold, we we punish people, not just outright in anger, but we end up punishing them and withholding attention, affection, or respect. You can see this with parents who are frustrated with their children. They might say, after they've disciplined their child for the umpteenth time, I forgive you. But you can see that the forgiveness hasn't been taken to heart because for the rest of the day, they are still responding and withholding their affection from that child in displaying their dismissal of that child. Or children punishing their parents after they've been hurt. They go out of their way to withhold respect from their parents, even when it costs them more than it costs the person who's on the receiving end. In forgiveness, we let go of our right to punish the other person ourselves, and we turn it over to the Lord. Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so we ourselves take a step back from this 
from this right that we have to punish that other person and we turn it over to the Lord. We do this as a recognition of what God has done for us. Letting go of our right to punish that other person because this is what God has done for us. Not because we deserve it and therefore also not because they deserve it. This is an extension of the grace that's been showed to us, overflowing from our cup to the cups of those who are around us. We ourselves have been forgiven. Now, how can we withhold it from others? It's at this point that we think back again to the response of the disciples, don't we? At their stepping back in shock and in awe, crying out, Increase our faith. But what do we see in the response of the Lord here? If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now is he telling Christians to pull up, to, 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 to start speaking to to mulberry trees and telling them to be thrown into the sea? No, he's not. But he's saying the point here is not the strength of our faith or the size of our faith. It's who it's in. It's impossible for us to do this of ourselves unless we remember this. It's God's grace that works in us the desire and the ability to wholeheartedly forgive, to wholeheartedly respond to what Christ has called us to. This is hard. In some ways, it can even feel impossible. It can be so, so difficult to hear this command. And yet God continues to forgive us even for these shortcomings. Even for this visceral response, our desire not to respond with an attitude of forgiveness. To listen to the flesh that wants vengeance. In the Canons of Dort, it says it so much better than I could. Chapter 5, Article 2, daily sins of weakness spring up and defects cling to even the best works of the saints. These are for them a constant reason to humble themselves before God, to flee to the crucified Christ, to put the flesh to death more and more and through through the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of godliness and to long and to strive for the goal of perfection until at last, delivered from this body of death, they will reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. This is the one in whom our hope is founded. Increase our faith. Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who grants us grace even in the face of our response of unforgiveness. 
And it's God's grace as we look to him that works in us the desire and the ability to wholeheartedly forgive. And so our petition today is a recognition of that grace that is shown to us. That grace that already begins in our hearts. That's a small seed that's planted and that begins to grow and blossom first in one area of our life and then another. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are forgiven ourselves. And so we do ourselves declare to God that we do find, as our catechism puts it, this evidence of our, your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. As we grow in grace and in the mercy of God, we hold to this and we rejoice in the evidence that he shows us that he is at work within us. Amen.